This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Phillies Backstage. Tom Burgoyne, along with my pal. John Brazier, Director of Fun and Games. Hello, John. How you doing? I'm doing great. Very excited for our guest because we know him very well. Uh, and he's covered a lot of different uh, positions in baseball, so I can't wait to kind of explore that. Yes, and he's on the line right now. How you doing, Ruben? I'm doing great, Tom, John. Good to be with you guys, and as you guys probably know me a little too well. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Ruben, uh, I think I told you off the air that at the end of this podcast, you would have an inside advantage if you heard our podcast before. We're not expecting it, but um, I do a quiz that's based on your life. So uh, you should, again, have an inside track of doing well on this quiz, but not everybody does well. They might not know themselves as well as they think so, but yes, I've known you for, actually, I've known you since high school, since we played soccer against each other. Uh, That's right. Yeah. So Well, and rest assured, uh, you can be comforted in the fact, Ruben, that we, uh, you know, we usually go around and say, hey, you know, we got so-and-so as a guest, and we're like, hey, we got Ruben on as a guest this week, and uh, we always go to video, Dan, hey, video, you got any stories? And of course, he told us about a dozen of them, but you're right, all all 12 we cannot use. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's likely the case yeah <laughs> but uh <laughs> likely hey listen it's great to have you back home i mean it was so weird first of all i'm still mad that you, you even took the job with the mets i don't care how how much money they <laughs> threw at you but the fact that you could even put on a mets jersey i know the fanatic wants nothing to do with you <laughs> Well, you know what? Sometimes you just got to pay the bills. You know, you got to stay in the game. And we, uh, I really enjoyed my time over there in Boston. And then when uh, when they decided to make change, pretty much wholesale change, when John Farrell left, they they allowed Alex Cora to come in and do his thing. So I was still under contract, and then uh, I ended up uh, getting an immediate look with uh, and and also a uh, interview with the with the Mets and Mickey Calloway and Sandy Alderson and. Uh, they basically hired me on the spot, and I said, "Okay, it's close. It's uh, I know it's the enemy, the Phillies' enemy yeah. number number one, public enemy number one. My kids weren't the happiest until they actually <laughs> got a chance to live, you know, fair, fairly close to Manhattan. They were kind of excited about that for a year, but um, but you know, you got to try to stay in the game. And and uh, while it was a little strange and uncomfortable putting on the Mets uniform, uh, you know, I still got the chance to be on the field and, and actually got a chance to spend a little time in Philadelphia as a result. Yeah, no, I guess that I guess that worked out. But uh, and, and we'll, we'll talk about your, your whole career. But, uh, you know, when you were I have to ask you, I mean, when you were here, I know the fanatic did have a little fun with you. I think he he brought you a, a fanatic doll just before the game started for the first game. But uh, were you getting heckled out there? Like, did you did any good lines out there from any hecklers like, uh, you know, from our famous Philadelphia fans? I'm sure they let you have it a little bit. Well, all in good fun. No, well, that's. 
Yeah, they love to, you know, always in good fun. No, they, they you know, they, they like to break out that, uh, their favorite, um, nickname for me, Ruin Tomorrow. So, oh, that's not uh, right. Yeah, I heard that, I heard, I heard, I heard that a few times. But, uh, now it's just your high school but, buddies. But, the <laughs> but, but actually, actually, to be honest with you guys, the fans were, um, have by and large have been just great. I mean, um, I think just the fact that I've kind of homegrown and been in the and was in the organization for so many years, and we actually had you know pretty good level of success for a while. Um, I think people remember that as well, and and uh, you know like on the streets and like uh, I know that on in uniform being in a Mets uniform it's one thing, but uh, but being in the streets of Philadelphia, people have been really gracious. So, Ruben, you know you've actually done so many jobs it's you're unique in the sense that i don't know if anybody's been as well rounded in their in their career in baseball so if you were an assistant gm you were a gm you were a player you were a third base coach you were a first base coach right you, you did both um you were a... i did so yeah third base coach only in spring training uh when brian, brian butterfield was uh, was down with the Mets, or excuse me with the boston red sox for that spring i actually did about 30 games that was fun but um and, and you were a scout as a Yep, yep, that's right. Which of all those jobs? Oh, now a broadcaster. Sorry. So of all those jobs, yeah. what do you think was, uh, you know, maybe not your highest paid, but what was the most challenging job of all those jobs? Well, I would say challenging um, was probably the, being the GM. There's no question about that uh, in Philadelphia. Um, just because, you know, the, because of the nature of the beast. You know, I, I – like to think that uh, that job is is made for people who want to compete and want to win, and uh, really, my um, my goal every single year, and I think I said it publicly, was to try to put the Phillies in a position to contend and to win every year, and uh, and I think that remains that would you know continue to remain my goal, and it's much easier said than done. Very tough thing to do. I know the Dodgers finally broke through this year, and after contending for many, many years. And uh, it's just difficult to get there. And then sometimes it takes a little bit of luck. And sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you have to hope that the baseball gods help you out. But um, I think challenging-wise, that was probably the most difficult one. As far as the most one that would be, like, the most fun, I mean, I had an absolute blast in Boston being the first base coach in Boston. That was being able to put the uniform back on. I will have to, I have to say, working with guys like Mookie Betts and – and big poppy and uh, just a whole slew of like great athletes and Xander Bogarts and had great friends on the staff. That was a real, real fun time for me. And Ruben, can you, let's pour a little deep into the GM job because a lot of people think, you know, as a GM on the surface level, it's trades, uh, you know, uh, working the free agent system, but you're overseeing the farm system. You're overseeing the development of the players. You're seeing, you know, analytics, you're seeing just, there's so much to it. So I guess what is what do you think makes a good GM uh, the qualities in this day and age, and how has it changed from when you were a player, you know, the GM job when you were a player way back when, to you know what it is now? Yeah, well, clearly it's the all of these departments have expanded dramatically. Um, uh, analysts being you know one of those one of those elements that I've grown to understand much better as a as a coach and as a someone who's worked in scouting now too. Um, I think that there's an expansion there, that there's a challenge in that. And, and I think it, it boils down to this, John. It's about being a good leader. Um, you have to be able to have 
you know, good leadership skills and you have to be able to hire the right people. And I'm, you know, when I say it's about talent, you know, you have to bring in talent, not just on the field for your players, but also talent in your staff. You have to have people who identify talented instructors and talented scouts, you know, the ability to bring in um, the best baseball people, the best analytics people uh, to evaluate. I think it's about uh, bringing in that talent and being able to lead them. You got to give them the autonomy to be as good as they can be. And yet, you know, you also have to give them, you know, you have to have some accountability for what they do. But, um, but I'll, I guess I'll quote, um, Dallas Green, the late great Dallas Green was probably another one of my baseball dads. Um, he, uh, you know, it was really a matter of putting out fires. You had to learn how to put out fires and you know how to be able to delegate, um, delegate some things. And, uh, you know, I got a chance to work with some, you know, Hall of Fame uh, people and, and guys like Dallas, Paul Owens, and, um, you know, cut my teeth with those guys, Ed Wade and, and Pat Gillick, who obviously is a Hall of Famer. And, uh, you know, the each all, the, all of them had different styles. All of them had different ways of going about it. And I was fortunate to be able to try to pick and choose some of their qualities. And uh, it was fun to be able to work for those people because you learn a lot from them. You know, and Ruben, what's so great about your story is how you started. And, you know, I'm sure when you were a bat boy on the, for that 1980 team, you know, you weren't thinking about uh, one day you'd be a, uh, a GM. You probably were thinking, uh, you know, you know, you were around the game, obviously, with your dad and your grandfather. Um, you know, uh, you wanted to be a ball player, I guess, huh? When you were, uh, you know, down here at the field and you're, you're, you're around the players and around that environment the whole time. Is that, you know, were, did you see yourself at that age? You know, that you're 15 years old. Uh, you know, were you thinking, hey, you know, uh, pursue this for a living? You know, it's funny you should ask that because John mentioned it before. You know, my first love of, like, uh, organized sports was soccer. And, um and I guess there's some people who had seen me as a youth probably would say that I was a much better soccer player talent-wise than I was a baseball player, which is probably true. And um, and at first, that was really what I wanted to pursue and such. And then when I had an opportunity to be um, to be on the field with my dad and, and the likes of guys like Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton and Larry Bowen and Bob Boone and, you know, I mean, just – just amazing uh, player, Manny Trio. I can see her name. Fake McBride was one of my favorite players. Um, and then I was yeah, around guys like Gary Matthews and, and, and so many others. And for the first part of the season, I was there with the Wee's kids, right? The Morgans and the Perez's and guys like Bo Diaz and those kind of guys. I mean, just tremendous human beings and really, really great players. And that was when... I just remember kneeling on that towel right next to the, um, and I didn't mention Pete Rose, obviously, but Pete Rose, uh, clearly. I remember leaning on that towel on the knee, because that's what we did as a bat boy, and looking up at Mike Schmidt and Pete Rose and watching them take, uh, you know, have at bats and stuff. And I thought to myself, how cool would it be to be on this stage and to be able to do this? And I thought, also thought to myself, there's no way I'll ever be good enough to be on this stage. <laughs> but, um, but I, that, that was the real impetus behind. That's when I started to really love, 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 love baseball. Um, was being around the clubhouse day in and day out in the major league clubhouse, and probably with the you know arguably one of the best major league teams uh, in baseball. And uh, and that's really when I fell in love and thought to myself, you know what? 
I think maybe baseball might be the, the route for me because I just enjoyed the game so much I started to really fall in love with it. Like are any of those players, uh, you know, you mentioned like all the greats in Philadelphia history, but anybody that really jumps out at you, anybody who razzed you, any, any funny, uh, you know, stories from, from those days? Oh, there's some good, well, there's some real good ones. You know, I used to have, um, you know, on the turf at the vet, it was like a thousand degrees, right? <laughs> yeah. It was always like, 30 or 40 degrees out and you could see like the, the vapors of the, <laughs> of the heat coming off the, coming off the turf. And, um, in fact, players having, and even when I was playing players have to come in and Jeff Cooper, our good friend, Jeff Cooper would have to like lay out these ice, uh, boxes. So you stepped in, stepped into them. So your you know, your feet didn't melt. But, um, I remember like having like a water and a Coke sitting there, um, next to the balls. Cause up back then we were doing the balls and the bats at the same time. And I remember guys like Dick Ruthven and Mike Kruko and those kind of guys, or for Larry Christensen, all those guys who like to mess around with the fat boys from time to time. Apparently, these guys were spitting into my Coke without me knowing oh, it. I'm God. still drinking it, damn thing. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, they spit tobacco, and then we had a tobacco wars. You spit them on your shoes and your on your. Oh yeah, it's kind of disgusting, but uh, but but. Uh, but one of the coolest stories about me being a bad boy I, I, I'd like to tell, tell is um, is about Gary Matthews. And Gary Matthews came over in 81, and that was when I was like the full-time bat, uh, bat boy. And Gary Matthews, before the season started, right after spring training, he comes up to me and he says, Ruben, I'm going to make you famous this year. And I said, really? He said, yep. Because my new gig is every time I get a base hit, I'm taking off my helmet and I'm spinning it at home plate. And then when I get to the, you know, when I get to my next, you know, when I get to my next uh, base, you bring my helmet out there. You get some airtime. Sure enough, it's one of his first at bats. He hits a double. Right. <laughs> takes off his helmet, spins it at home plate, goes to second base in a stand-up double, and then I, then I have to obviously have to go grab his helmet, run it out there to him. He gives me a high five. He said, "See." Told you I was going to make you famous. <laughs> so funny. Hey, Ruben, you know what's funny? As a fan, I mean, but he did, he, he did it all year long. He did it all year long. It's pretty funny. As pretty a cool. fan, I remember, you know, watching, we're the same age, we're all the same age. And I remember, like, Gary Matthews seemed like an intimidating guy, but then we all got to know him as a broadcaster and as an alumnus. And, you know, he's anything but, maybe he was back then. Was yeah. he intimidating or was he yeah. more kind of uh, the, the, the Gary Matthews, a Sarge, we see, you know, we've seen the last 15 years? You know, I think he's more of that sergeant. But when it came crossing the, the, the cross, when you cross the line, right. it was really about competing. I actually, it was about competing. It was like um, I'll, I'll never forget when I played with Dave Winfield. The same sort of attitude that when they got to the plate, you know, there was like they believed in it being like a gunfight. Right? This is a guy. This pitcher's trying to get me out, and I'm trying to get him. And this is a this is a you know one on one mano a mano confrontation. And that's how he played the game when he crossed the line. When he was off the field, he loved to have an, He loved playing, and he really enjoyed it. And in fact, uh, he was one of those guys that, uh, you know, one of his things every time, uh, just before the, uh, just at, just after the anthem, and just before the first pitch, he before he ran out to left field, you know, Gary would say, "Okay, boys, it's time for the show. Let's go ahead and put on the show." And uh, and he really enjoyed playing. But when it came to Taking his at bats and and, uh, and and competing, you know, there was nobody more fierce and nobody who was more uh, competitive than Gary as well. Did you ever stick your arm in the Gus Heffling 
uh, Steve Carlton trash can of rice. <laughs> so this is funny. Uh, I came over and got traded from the uh, uh, from the Angels, and um, and I was never really a power hitter. I, I was more of a you know kind of a doubles and singles, gap to gap type hitter in the minor leagues. Didn't have a whole lot of home runs. I think my the most I had one year was seven. And um, and in the off season, Gus Heffling was working out with several players. Um, I had to have a I think I had to have like a knee surgery or something like that. But I after that, I actually did the workouts almost on a daily basis. And you know, a lot of the Gus Heffling stuff that he did. Um, and I forget who was it. I think Andy Carter was one guy, and Jason Grimsley were two of the guys. You remember Jason? Yeah. Who um, who were like really, really, really into it, and we were there almost every single day. And we did the workouts in the off season, and I will tell you unequivocally, you know, he was kind of a man ahead of his time, who um, really, I mean, it was really about core strength, right? And that was it became ended up becoming like one of the most important things that people even talk about today. And the workouts that we did were just, I mean, you talk about drench being drenched at the end of the day. But um, that next year, I think I hit seven home runs. I had a couple of home runs in the first week of the season. I'm thinking to myself, man, all of a sudden I got, I got, I got power. It kind of got me in trouble, I think. But um, but it actually made me much stronger. And it was, uh, I mean, those those workouts were so grueling. But there's a lot of martial arts involved and a lot of body control, a lot of mind control. And, uh, and I'll tell you, it really, really helped me um, uh, develop, you know, strength in the middle of my body and, you know, you know, what, what, what I guess some people call man strength now. That certainly uh, helped me on that path. Yeah, and it's, and that was when you uh, yeah came to Philadelphia. It was ninety. You got traded in ninety one. And John, did you know it was uh, uh, Von Hayes? Von Hayes. Yeah. yeah, we traded Von Hayes to uh, not the five for one. The Angels. No, no. Yeah, it just uh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know who else was in that trade, Ruben. It was me and Kyle Abbott, and we both stunk. And then uh, and and uh, and. and Von Purple Hayes didn't, didn't play so well for the Angels either, so it was kind of a wash. <laughs> well, hey, what do you mean you, st- you you came in? I'll never forget '92, uh, Ruben. I mean, you when you did, uh, you were uh, Lenny was hurt, right? And so uh, all of a sudden, yep. you were kind of the starting. Uh, was it center field? I mean, I guess, or did they shift yep, somebody I over to center? Yeah, yeah you're right in center, and no, then uh, I, yeah, you, no, yeah, you, you had center, some yeah. big games early on. Well, and how cool is that, Ruben? I mean, yeah. tell, tell us what that was like. You grew up in Philly, and all of a sudden you're wearing a Phillies. You, you get drafted by the Angels, but you're wearing a Phillies uniform out there. <laughs> I, mean, I imagine your ticket requests were nuts that first game, or that whole whatever the whole season. Yeah, probably. that was, I think I like to make I like to think that that was my excuse for how poorly I played the rest of the year. But no, I I, I actually when I when I think about it. Um, that was the first time I ever made a team out of spring training. I had a great spring uh, with Philadelphia um, in the spring of '92. Uh, Jim Fergosi, the manager, um, and made the club. And then I remember standing with like 60,000 people in the stands in '92, and standing on the line, thinking to myself, "Oh my God, I am a Philadelphia Philly, and I'm playing for the Philadelphia Phillies. This is insane." Um, I remember doing it. You know, having a uniform as a bat boy, and for me to be standing there as a major league player making my first major league roster um, and standing on the lines when we did the anthem um, that opening day, that was pretty pretty damn extraordinary. I remember 
that was the first year uh, of the new uh, yes. new types of uniforms. I, I was going to say the same thing. Yes, yes, Roman, I was going to say the same thing. And I, I'll never forget it. I mean, the crowd was so fired up, you know, with that whole, you know, the promotion. The team takes the field in their new uniforms. We had made it a, a, a secret. Yep. You know, it was kind of nobody knew what the new uniform, new logo was going to look like. Take the field, you know, get through the, you know, the uh, top of the first inning. Lenny leads off and gets hit by Maddox, right? It was Greg Maddox. Alex hit him, right? Yeah, he threw him a little cutter, hit him on the wrist, and I think he actually uh, had one or two more bats before he got taken out of the game. He just couldn't really swing the bat. And yeah. and that's when I came in, I think, late in the game, either in a double switch or pinch hit. And uh, I think I flew out deep to left. Um, actually, hit the ball pretty good. <laughs> almost, hit a, almost hit a home run my very first at bat. And then I ended up uh, playing pretty consistently until they finally had to get me out of the lineup because I had been struggling. But that first week of the season was pretty extraordinary. I guess my first game, I had a home run and two doubles. Um, and then I think that first week, I remember being on ESPN, doing an ESPN uh, spot, and I guess I was leading all of baseball in like seven different categories, <laughs> nice. offensive categories. And I was like literally in a tree. And then unfortunately for me, I started thinking I was a home run hitter, so I probably started swinging out of my rear end for like the next – uh, for the next two months and really struggled, but um, but it was a hell of a it was a hell of a uh, one week or ten day period. Uh, I ended up hitting like three or four home runs in the first ten days or something like that, and I was kind of in a tree, you know. Who, who did you hang with the most in those a uh, couple of years in ninety one, ninety two, ninety three? Yeah, I think Dave Hollins was one of my real good friends. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. I knew Dave quite well. I mean, I was a rookie, and back then, as you know, it was a little rough to get. Uh, indoctrinated into that, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess they call it Macho Row with, uh, with Dalton and Crucky uh, and the Dude, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Dave Hollins, I had played against in, uh, in Double A before he was uh, Rule 5 by the, uh, from the Padres to the Phillies. And uh, so I had a pretty decent familiarity with him, but he's remained a great friend of mine and ended up being a very good scout for us, um, uh, for me, and uh, and a great friend, a real, real, a real good friend and a mentor. In fact, um, when I came back uh, in in '96, <clears throat> um, Darren Dalton was still on the club, and Darren kind of took me under his wing, and I got really, really close with Darren for for uh, a number of years. Uh, and was real close with him uh, up until the day he passed. So, but uh, but I think Dave Hollins is probably the one guy that I would I would say I kind of um, gravitated towards the most during those during those couple of years. And uh, you know the Phillies wound up in last place in 1992. Did you have any indication that the following year would be the kind of year it was in '93? No, and then I remember watching like the internet, uh, the, the transaction wire, and, and I'm watching, you know, uh, Lee Thomas go to Lee Thomas and Ed Wade go to work on uh, trying to build that team, and you know, I see Incavelli get signed, and Eisenreich get signed, and Milt Thompson get signed, and I'm thinking, I'm starting to count on my fingers. I'm like, ooh, this is not good <laughs> for me. Uh, there, 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 there's too many outfielders on the same team. <laughs> uh. um, but it was, but it was very understandable. I mean, listen, um, they they had to get better, and they did. And I, I think what ended up happening was um, they ended up um, hitting on 
uh, a lot of great makeup guys, but also the right mix. And, and they had a great manager in Jim Pagosi in that we had a great manager in that he was able to put those guys in a position to have success. I mean, shoot, we ended up having, what, three different uh, platoons, everyday platoons. Uh, we, you know, we added guys like Danny Jackson and Shill started really stepping up. And, um, you know, you start, you start thinking about what kind of club he had where he had Terry Hall, uh, Mo Holland. So um, I, I think it was a surprise to the rest of the world because, you know, almost every one of those players probably had their career years, but um, but really, uh, it's not it's not that surprising in that um, you know they've got the right mix of people and the right mentality and the right makeup guys to really have the kind of success that uh, that the team ended up having. It was a dream year. I mean, when people talk about it, uh, they they uh, even there's some people who have you know, great joy and even sometimes love that team more than the 2018 that ended up winning the World Series. Hey, Ruben, moving to the um, present day, I'm sure you watch the playoffs. Um, I'm like, I always, I'm very curious on this, is that, you know, every year a different style team wins and sports are somewhat of a copycat league, all sports. Um, so when the Kansas City Royals win, then teams are like, well, maybe defense and, uh, you know, is, is super important. Obviously, you got to go with the timely hitting, and uh, then you go into like maybe the bullpen. Uh, if, if a team you know dominates with their bullpen, um, or maybe it's a, you know th- you look at the Rays, and that was their formula that they they had you know about nine guys that throw 100 miles an hour in their bullpen. But you look at the Dodgers, and every guy that started a game in the playoffs was a guy that they drafted and developed. So do do GMs or do teams look at you know when they're watching the World Series all that? you know, the 28 other teams that don't make it, are they looking to say, you know what, maybe that's the style or maybe that's the, the secret to success going forward? Does that does it influence the way teams build by looking at what's been successful that year? Uh, I think it does, John, and I think in some cases it's to the detriment of the game because I think that there's just like <laughs> – uh, there are some fundamental things that have to happen in sports in a variety of different sports. Like I'll bring up um, – I'll bring up uh, football, for instance. And if you don't block and tackle, you're not going to win. I don't care if you have the greatest players on the planet um, on your on your field and the great, greatest athletes in the planet, even though the best quarterback or what have you. But if you don't block and tackle, you're not winning. You're not winning. A, you're not winning a Super Bowl. If you do not pitch and you do not catch it in baseball, you're not going to win. And you have to. That, those are two things that I ha- I believe. And whether it's maximizing your starting pitching or maximizing your whole, you know, rotation and, and your bullpen, um, you know, if, if you have pitching, and I've always believed in this, and I watched it happen in, in Atlanta for 14 straight years, and I watched it happen with us in, in the run that we had. We had quality starting pitching, and as a result of that, um, I think it was, you know, th- those were the critical reasons why we had so much success. We had an, an incredible mix. And we were actually very fortunate in 2008 because we had a pretty good mix of offense, obviously, and and uh, and pitching. But we also had extraordinary defense in those in 2008. So, um, you know, to me, um, if you don't pitch it and you don't catch it, then you don't give yourself a chance. If you do that on a daily basis, or you can do that uh, uh, as an organization, and you can have to focus on that, I think you can have a lot of success. But and you have to score runs. I get it. Um, but it's just as far as staples are concerned, 
Um, I think you just have to be able to pitch and catch it. <laughs> so, Ruben, if you were watching the World Series and knowing how important <laughs> pitching is and fragile it can be from one inning to the next, one night to the next, how do you take out Snell in the sixth game of the World Series after he's throwing the game that he's having? And I've heard the argument that, oh, you know, Cash has been did it all season long, and that's what got him there. But in the sixth game of the World Series, and you got a guy who is the top three batters for the, you know, the top of the order for the uh, Dodgers went 0 for 6 with 6 Ks. I mean, the guy was dominant. He only gave up two hits. Um, do you think he should have been pulled in that situation? I don't, um, but I have. I mean, listen, I have a great deal of uh, respect for Cash and the whole Tampa Bay Rays organization because I think they do believe in pitching it and catching it, and I think that's something that's important to them. They happen to have had one of the best, if not the best, maybe ever bullpens I've ever seen, um, and and they had an outstanding one. I think that there's also the element of um, of heart and and your eyes, and and I think those things. Um, have to come into play um, when you are managing players and people. And I think more than anything else, um, yes, you can look to the numbers and it can give you a lot of great information. But at the end of the day, I think you have to trust your eyes and your heart and your soul when you're making decisions as a manager. And uh, it was pretty clear that this kid was dominating. Uh, He was cruising along. I know he gave up the base hit prior to getting pulled but um but i didn't see anything in his stuff um and his location that really uh, warranted that you know kevin cash had a reason and as long as he has a reason you know it's a reasonable reason <laughs> then you, you can't fault the guy you know, in my estimation there there are some situations where um you know you have to go against the grain you have to decide what's right for for your team and for that player and for your organization and uh and in that instance i just felt like and i'm not being on the bandwagon because i think i tweeted it out right away when he came walking out like <laughs> what is going on <laughs> yeah, they, they, um, <laughs> I, I just i just felt like um i just felt like it was not the right time particularly now if he had brought in uh their closer at that time to try to stop the game i could have probably accepted a little bit more but they also brought in somebody who really had not been pitching all that well and I know it's nice to bring in people who have track record, but when it comes down to winning, uh, it's really about having a very, very short window of opportunity. And uh, I think you just have to go with your best people. I mean, you know, Julio Urias was probably not their closer, which I know was not their closer in L.A., but Dave Roberts stuck with him for the last, what, eight outs of the game. And so, um, (laughs) I mean, Chris Sale, uh, made the last pitch of the game uh, when Boston Red Sox won, and he wasn't their closer. So I think you try to utilize, um, you know, maybe your best players at that time. And sometimes it's not what the numbers say, but what your heart does. Well, the Twitterverse went crazy, as you know, because uh, you just said you tweeted yourself. Yeah. I think the best tweet I saw, uh, Rube, was uh, so someone wrote, uh, Justin Turner must have given Kevin Cash COVID in the beginning, you know, sometime during the game because he obviously lost his sense of smell. <laughs> Lost his sense of Lost smell. Lost his sense of smell. There you go. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. that's, pretty, that's a pretty good. There's a lot. Listen, there's some, a lot more uh, witty and intelligent people than me out there. And, and it's, there's some funny things that come out there. But I saw something about, can you imagine, like, uh, Charlie trying to take Doc out of that game or something or like Bob, that? I saw I mean, Bob Gibson. Uh, honestly. 
Yeah, yeah. talk about but something well, like Bob yeah, Gibson I mean, or, probably would have yeah. right. probably would have punched the manager. <laughs> right, I mean, you know, right. he, 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 um, some, some guys just would not would not have relented. And uh, I know John Lackey the one time I guess he was taken out. Well, I think it might have been Mike Socher was a pretty strong minded guy and, and, and no slouch. I think uh, I think Lackey got taken out of a game and he was freaking out one time. Uh, maybe it was Joe Madden who took him out. And was in, maybe he was in, uh, in with the Cubbies when they won the World Series, but. You know, um, it, it's, uh, it, it was unfortunate for Tampa Bay. They had a stupendous run. I actually uh, toot my own horn here, but I actually made the call that Tampa was going to win the AL East and, and Los Angeles was going to win the NL, excuse me, AL, and uh, the Dodgers were going to win the NL, and I thought that, that ultimately the Dodgers would prevail just because they, they would out-talent. The, the Tampa Bay Rays, which is kind of what happened. Yeah, you, you were all over it, and it was pretty cool to have the two best teams make it to the World Series. It was a great World Series uh, and just awesome to see, yeah, the pitching and level play. You know, it was really, uh, really entertaining. So uh, you, you nailed it. You got it right. And Brage is over there. What are you doing? Waving uh, your well, quiz around? I, yeah, we're going to wrap it up, Ruben, and uh, this has been great. Uh, first of all, before I get to the quiz, uh, I just want to let you know, too, okay. to let the audience know that you – uh, Ruben and I were the same year. He went to Penn Charter. I went to Hereford. We were both strikers. One of us was the MVP of the Interact League, which is a very good league in Philadelphia, and it wasn't me. <laughs> so, so yeah, Ruben, you were, you know, I know you're not going to pat yourself on the back, but uh, you were obviously uh, the best player in the Interleague. And, inter -league, and so. one of us got recruited. Well, you, I don't know if you got – you didn't play soccer at Stanford, but you probably could have, right, Ruben? Yeah, I think I made it clear to a bunch. Of, I was going to. I was thinking about maybe playing two sports, but uh, but uh, I wasn't smart enough. Number one, to get through like, with one sport at Stanford, so I decided just to hang out and play baseball. I was going to try to walk on and play as a walk on, but I, I guess my the fire of of enjoying uh, soccer had kind of kind of gone out, and I started throwing all my eggs in that baseball basket. Yeah, well, you chose wisely, and uh, we, we, I meant to throw it out there. You won the 1987 uh, championship when you were, I guess, were you a senior at Stanford? That was your last year there, right? Yeah, yeah it was my senior year um, before I uh, left and uh, was fortunate to be able to be with Jack McDowell and Toy Cook and my good friend David Eskew, who's now the head coach at Stanford, and we ended up winning the World Series, and uh, it was it's just an absolute extraordinary moment. Oh. It was really fun. Awesome. awesome. And that's going to lead into the quiz because Tom just – he always just blows one of my questions because he doesn't know the questions <laughs> I ask in a quiz. Uh. And you'll see, you'll see why in a little bit. All right, Ruben, we got eight questions. We do it to every one of our contestants. Not to put any pressure on you, but Jason Stark went eight for eight. Uh, and I think Mike Tolan went – Oh, shocking. Mike Tolan, I, I think, I'm went eight for eight, right? Or maybe Mike went seven for eight. But I feel oh, very so confident you're going to do well. Hey, you went to Stanford. Come on. All right. And if you get eight for eight, uh, Ruben, no, if you get six, if you get six out of eight, um, Fanatic, what does he win? <laughs> uh, I don't know. What, do we have any giveaways coming uh, coming up? This I think the season's <laughs> over. Come we on, you got to have something. You got to have give something. Me a nice, you, can, you, you can give me a pat on the back next time. Ah, right, there you go. All that right. works for me. We'll, we'll take you out to lunch. All right, here we go. Question number one, and it is multiple choice, Ruben. So. Question oh, okay. number one, which celebrity did not go to Penn Charter? Okay, one of these celebrities did not go to Penn Charter. If, you're, if you put yourself in there as one of the... Uh, I didn't go to Penn okay. Charter. Oh, that's right. Yeah, right? right, come on. All right. All right, 
A, winner of the U.S. Open in Wimbledon, uh, tennis player Vic Satius Jr. Uh, B, Falcons quarterback Matt Ryan. C, match game 76 celebrity Charles Nelson Riley. And D, TV and film producer and writer Adam Goldberg. Which one did not go to Penn Charter? Well, it's either uh, A or C. So it's Vic Satius Jr. or uh, Charles Nelson Riley. He's the one who had the ascot in match game. I would say C, Charles. <laughs> you are, you yeah. are correct. And if you listen to our podcast, I always throw a match game 76 guy into the, uh, into the quiz. So. <laughs> thank, God, thank God I got that one. There you go. So, all right. Which celebrity did not go to Stanford? All right. This is question number two. Which celebrity did not go to Stanford? A, actress Reese Witherspoon. B, actor Don Knotts. C, author John Steinbeck. D, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So is it Reese Witherspoon, Don Knotts, John Steinbeck, or Sandra Day O'Connor? Don Knotts. <laughs> exactly. It's correct. See, you're two for two. You're on a roll. All right, we're moving into – Don Knotts went to Mayberry. I did, not, I did not know Reese – I actually did not know that Reese Witherspoon went to Stanford. I should have known that. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I do know that Gretchen Carlson went to Stanford, but I did not know that Reese Witherspoon did. That's pretty, pretty she did, good. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, all right, now this yeah, one you should this one you should nail. How many home runs, major uh -huh. league? How many major league home runs did you have in your career? Sixteen, twenty-three, ten, or nineteen? I had sixteen. I think it was exactly Correct. one more than my father had, which was fifty. Oh, that is that right? There you go. That's great know that. to know. All right, number four. This is where uh, Burgoyne kind of uh, went into my area. Which of these players was not? a player on your 1987 Stanford World's College World Series baseball team, okay? Uh, one is a okay. non-player. One is Jack McDowell, Toy Cook. Those are the two guys you mentioned, so that's why. Uh, Lee Plemmel <laughs> or Freddie Acura Jr.? Uh, Freddie Acura or Freddie Acuna Jr. were not my, on my team. <laughs> that is correct. All right, you are four for four on a roll. All right, who did you beat out for the final roster spot on the 1995 Cleveland Indians playoff roster? Was it Albert Bell, Dave Winfield, Manny Ramirez, or Kenny Lofton? It was Dave Winfield, and it was one of the strangest things, if I can elaborate. Yeah, I, mean, I remember like being real scared about it because um, you know, Winnie's just a great I, – I was a, a teammate of his even in, in with the Angels before I got traded over to the Phillies when I got called up briefly, and – you know, this is a Hall of Fame guy, and he—I'll never forget this. this. is the most, the most professional thing I've ever seen. After they made the call, I know Winnie was really, really, really pissed off, and um, because he wanted to be on the roster, and but he came over to me. I remember he came across the uh, clubhouse at one point because he knew I was feeling like really kind of weird about it. He came over and he said, "Ruben." He said, I want to congratulate you. I'm happy for you. I'm pissed off for me. But he said, this doesn't have anything to do or nor will it ever affect our relationship as, as teammates. And I thought that was wow. one of the coolest freaking yeah. things ever. That's awesome. Because, um, because uh, and, and Winnie, uh, he's just a tremendous, tremendous uh, person. Great guy. Yeah, that's a good story. Awesome. So, um, all right, you got three more, uh, three more questions. You are five for five. So uh, your father uh -oh. is... I believe half Mexican, half Cuban, right? He is indeed. So I've got a Mexico question and I got a Cuba question. Okay, so number six. Oh, good. Question number six. Cinco de Mayo. 
what does that celebrate uh, in Mexico? What does Cinco de Mayo celebrate? Is it A, Mexican independence? Is it B, Mexican New Year? Is it C, a military victory in a battle with the French in 1862? Or is it D, the end of the Mexican-American War? No, this is sad, but I think it's C. C is correct, a military victory, just because it was so random, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, all right, yeah. now... Yeah, yeah. Now, you're, this is where I'm going to get in trouble with your mom since your mom was my uh, Spanish teacher uh, here at the, at the Phillies. So, and, I'm, and I am part Cuban like you are, uh, and I'm going to completely right, right. butcher this. But what do Cubans call their island due to its shape or form? What do Cubans call their island due to its shape or form? Again, sorry, uh, Judy, I'm going to totally butcher this. But is it El Cocodrilo, which is the crocodile, is it El Abrilates, which is the can opener? Is it El Cinturon, the belt, or La Cinta, the ribbon? So the crocodile, the can opener, the belt, or the ribbon? Well, I might definitely screw this one up. Uh, El Cocodrilo. Yep. La Cintura. Yep. Uh, ribbon, Cinta. La Cinta. Or, or the can opener, Abrilates. Or, or Oh, my God. Uh, I'll say Cocodrilo. You got it. You got it, the crocodile. Oh, my God. Look at that. Yeah, well, at least, uh, I mean, that, that was, that was, a, that was a, I thought that was a shape, sort of a shape. But anyway, All right. I'm glad I got it right. Here you go. This should be the easiest one uh, because, uh, first of all, you've been an actor in the Goldbergs, right? Well, you have, a, you have a character, but you also made some appearances, correct? Right. That is correct. Yep. Right. So in the show, The Goldbergs, which is obviously somebody from – uh, it was, uh, what we already said it. It was Goldberg, Adam, yeah. Adam Goldberg, who was from, who went to Penn yeah. Charter. What school mascot? What school mascot did Barry and Adam steal in order to get back into the good graces of the crew? Is it A the Germantown Falcon? Is it B the Hereford Ford? Is it C the Springfield Spartan? Or is it D the Episcopal Churchman? So A the Germantown Falcon. B, the Harvard Ford, C, the Springfield Spartan, or D, the Episcopal Churchman? For eight for eight, perfect All right. record. All right. Give it to me again. I'm sorry. I was totally that, That's okay. Out, so. the, the Germantown Falcon, yeah. the Haverford right. Ford, the Springfield Spartan, or the Episcopal Churchman? So the Germantown Academy Falcon or the Germantown Falcon? Uh, the, it just says Germantown Falcon. But I'm sure they well, probably meant the Germantown Academy Falcon. Okay, well, I'll say A, Germantown Falcon. And you are correct. Wow. Eight you for are eight. correct. No eight for way. eight. Look at you. Yes. <laughs> you were in fine company with Jason Stark and Mike Tolan. That's crazy. That doesn't happen very often, though. I, I, I was, uh, that was pretty much a guess. <laughs> well, Hey, Ruben, I will say, I mean, uh, and I've had the uh, pleasure to go out there and, and do a couple of those shows, too, with my friend. And uh, what a blast, yeah, I mean, to yeah. be on the set and to see, you know, them doing their thing out there. I mean, isn't, isn't it great to see the behind the scenes of, of that whole show? It, it was fantastic. And I don't know, a little known, uh, this is uh, maybe a, a little known fact, is that uh, the guy that played me on the show, Ruben Amaro Jr., um, was a guy named Nico Wardado. Nico Wardado, interestingly enough, is a young actor who's actually made uh, quite a bit of hay there, and he's actually uh, done real well. But Nico Wardado is also the son of Eddie Wardado, everyday Eddie Wardado, the relief pitcher for, for the Twins, Twins yeah, yeah. Channel, uh, Mariners. 
And uh, I got a chance to meet him in 2016 in the, uh, because Eddie at the time was a, was the bullpen coach for the Seattle Mariners, or excuse me, for the Minnesota Twins at the time. And we got a chance to spend, uh, spend an evening together. He's a great kid. And, uh, it's kind of a really ironic that he actually played me on the show. So <laughs> that is <laughs> kind of a trip. That, but, uh, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, kind of a trip. So you yeah, were, you, you were, you went Hollywood on us a little bit. A little, yeah, for, for a minute. I actually had enjoyed, I had two stints on the show. Um, and then I guess I had one small, uh, stint on the show that comes out, comes on afterwards, I guess. Yeah, school. Um, with, yeah. The school, yeah, I was on that for, for a minute. I, I was being interviewed by the uh, fictional Rick Meller, but um, but uh, I really enjoyed it. I was on the set twice, had a couple of really cool scenes, and uh, the people there were just great. Man, I screwed up my lines about twenty <laughs> times, but they were all real. They were all really, uh, they were all really very patient with me and very gracious. It was fun. I Excellent. Had a time. Excellent. Well, it was fun having you on our podcast, Ruben. Uh, John and I were looking forward to this. And by the way, uh, you you crushed it uh, in the booth this year. I, I know I got a text your first game. My son Andrew was all over it, and he texted me, Dad, Dad, you know, Ruben's doing great. Have you heard? You know, so, uh, you know, you, you, you got the That's thumbs up cool. from my son, but but everybody. I mean, right, John? I mean, everybody's like, Brazier, Ruben's. A thumbs up from yeah. Jill Brazier as well. Yep, yep. So, uh, and John. I don't know. I, I, I enjoy, yeah, I, I really enjoy doing it. Uh, hopefully I'll get an opportunity to do it some more in the future. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the, what the folks at NBC Sports Philly have to say about that. But uh, but it was fun being able to be on there. You know, Tom McCarthy is just, just a wonderful, wonderful professional and, and so easy to work with. Made life a lot easier for us. And and uh, obviously working with Greg with Murph as well was, was real fun. So Great, great. All right. Well, uh, great having you on, Ruben, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon, all right? Thanks, Ruben. Okay, guys. Hey, always a pleasure, man. I uh, uh, It was great to talk to you guys, and uh, well, hopefully we'll do it again soon. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Thanks, Ruben. All right, how about that, John Robin Abaro? We well, love again, that guy. it's it's we got to know him on so many levels, yeah. uh, and it's you know again I I've known him since high school, and he was a phenomenal soccer player, really was, uh, striker, just scored a lot of goals, and he could I he could easily played Division One soccer anywhere. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. He was saying I mean, he was fifth like in 1980 when he first started as a bat boy. He was already 15. It's not like he was. Eight, right. you know what I mean? Ten years old. He was fifteen, and then seventeen. So it's almost like he got that spark to play. Well, his brother, his older brother David, okay. was a phenomenal baseball player. Yeah, played uh, played at Duke. Was uh, you know the bit, well, I think was probably the better player. He'll, Ruben will tell you was mm. a better player probably like you know through college. Yeah, and then you know just Ruben kept going. Ah, that's great. Love a good uh, homegrown story, yep. huh, John? And yep. Ruben is uh, you know pretty much the, the pinnacle. And now that, we have to so. take him to lunch since he went eight for eight. So. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Well, that was good. Hey, th- thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, Philly's backstage, and we'll catch you next time. Take care. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 